T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. She was a state senator for a decade and became one of the now famous marijuana moms, a title that probably doesn't mean what you may think it does. Now, Toy Hutchinson is the state official overseeing the Illinois legalization of recreational pot, and we have got a lot to talk about. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Hutchinson's official title is senior advisor to the governor for cannabis control. Some people call her the pot czar for short. I can't say if that's affectionate or not, but she is watching over the state's newest and apparently very successful industry. Toy Hutchinson is a lawyer and has been a lawmaker from Olympia Fields, and she was one of the top Democratic budget negotiators for years. I would call her a state budget expert and a strong advocate for people who were not born with trust funds and stock portfolios. Uh, she was also one of the four state legislators who crafted the record recreational marijuana law. They're the so-called marijuana moms, parents who are also friends and who were fiercely dedicated to seeing that this law did more than just help people get high. Uh, Credit where credit is due. Uh, The others are Chicago State Senator Heather Staines, Chicago State Representative Kelly Cassidy, and Peoria State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth. I want to make sure that their names get in here, too, because uh, you guys are a team. Uh, this weekend, we are going to talk about the law, the mission, the problems, and the future. Like I said, a lot. Toy Hutchinson, welcome back. I'm so happy to be here. So good to see you. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year <laughs> to you, too. Uh, the first week of recreational cannabis sales in Illinois made national headlines and brought in nearly $11 million in sales. That was the good news, but we started the second week with some dispensaries out of the product. So overall, Toy Hutchinson, how would you assess where things are right now? Fascinating. (laughs) That's how I would assess it. It's fascinating. I feel like um, after spending so many years watching all the other states and what the states, how other states rolled out, we had a very, very smooth rollout. I mean, I remember, so I was up at 5.30 in the morning on January 1, and we were watching all day to see how things were happening. We had one minor little computer glitch in the morning that was fixed like within an hour. You had people, so many people standing in line. And the thing about the people who were standing in line was that they all seemed to be really happy people. Like it was, people were talking to each other. They, neighbors were coming out with like donuts and and coffee for folks in the cold. It was like at one location, I think there were almost 800 people in line before 7 a.m. So well, it um, was an event. It was, it, it was, and it was historic because it was, it really marked the end of prohibition. That this was, this day in Illinois is the end of prohibition of, of cannabis in this state. And that is, you know, people just wanted to be there and be a part of it. And I think that's why the sales were so strong that first day. So largely, um, I could not have been happier with the way, you know, it initially rolled out. We told people for three weeks and up until that point, there's going to be lines. There's going to be shortages. There's going to be this, 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 the system has to work the kinks out. Um, You couldn't anticipate what the demand was going to be. But what we saw 
was that it's a strong signal that there is an incredible amount and potential for growth. That the the demand was um, a fascinating thing to watch. What's the learning curve uh, going to be like for this industry? I, I mean, there. Uh, Learning curve Are there a lot of things? Oh goodness! Well, from the state perspective, you know, it'd be it would have been nice for some of the things that we did if we had had some breadcrumbs to follow, but we didn't. We 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 used to go the four of us, uh, me, Heather, Kelly, and and Jahan would constantly talk to when we talked to other legislators in other states. We'd say, "What did you do well? What do you wish you could have done better? If you had it to do all over again, what would you do different?" And that informed almost every piece of this equity-centric thing that we built. We knew that if you didn't tie, if you didn't tie the legalization and normalization of this product to the harms from the prohibition of the exact same activity, that it would be fundamentally unfair. And we knew we had an opportunity to do this in a different way than anybody else did. So the learning curve is steep. Like I tell people, this took hundreds and hundreds of hours and two governors before we got one that believed us. And then we, and then in walked J.B. Pritzker, who said from the outset that um, not only did he run on the issue, but he said, I want the most equity-centric thing. I, wanted, I want Illinois to be different and to be a model. And it was, it was when all the pieces came together, um, we studied, we studied, we traveled, we learned, we debated, we challenged, we, even amongst ourselves, we would have hard conversations amongst ourselves because when you talk about cannabis... Cannabis is so complicated. It is so layered. And it's it's indicative of why this is one of the few things that the state does that touches seven different agencies. Hmm. So very few things that we do touch seven different agencies. So I, I am now switching hats from being a policymaker to implementing this thing. And that requires me to, you know, flex different muscles than I did when I was just really talking at the 50,000 foot level. Like this is... This is what I think the policy of the state should be. Now it's like, how do you do that? Mm. <laughs> and we are we are working as hard as we can um, to do this the best way we can. What's the biggest unknown right now? What's the the, the, Ooh, thing the biggest unknown that uh, that you're still trying to learn about? To try to figure out. Um, well, on the technical side, you know, I I I am learning about the process. You know, it's like most people will talk about, you know, like even what the other states did. Like, should this be taxed and re- taxed and regulated like alcohol? And it's a simple question to ask. Um, it is a much deeper question to ask about when you learn about vertical integration models or growth cycles or um, environmental concerns or labor issues. And, you know, the fact that these are retail locations at the dispensary level, but they're agricultural almost institutions um, at the plant level. Or the fact that this industry is emerging and there'll be so many different things that will grow along with it for for any for people to be a part of, even if they never touch the plant. So I think the biggest I would probably say the biggest unknown is that I don't think this industry is going to look the way it looks today, 10 years from now. And so we have to we have to work really hard to, you know, implement it but also plan for what we hope the industry grows to be. And I can't, we don't, we don't have all those answers. We know what it's been, but we're trying to do something different here in Illinois. And that, that takes a lot of effort. Do you know what you want it to be? We knew that we wanted to do, that equity for us was three buckets. It was how do you diversify the industry? What do you do with the money? And how do you undo the harms? How do you repair the harms from, from prohibition? 
And so um, on one on one end, we I know that the industry was all white and pretty much all male across the country. Like you could say almost every state in the nation has has a legal medical program. But medical um, doesn't seem to be as polarizing or as political as adult uses. Most people, when you talk about medical, concentrate on patients, you know, like people who are severely ill in terminally ill or um, significant pain or you start looking at um, seizure disorders and things like that, that you really you you have there's there's room for people to be compassionate about the need to want to use cannabis to uh, to relieve yourself of these ailments and things and to help its quality of life and all of those things. So you don't necessarily talk about when but when you get into the adult use space, then you realize that this is not just about whether or not someone can, as you said in the intro, which was awesome to get high. <laughs> This is drug policy reform. This is criminal justice reform. This is this is taking all that we've learned over the fa- from the failed war on drugs and doing it better. So to create that nexus, um, we drew a distinct line from people who were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs um, and the and the and the normalization and legalization of this product. It was like we're in this moment in time where I think in. T- 2019 2020 looking back on this this is these are pioneering days and we're hoping that states that follow us use us as a model because we we attempted to do something big and we put everything we had behind it well i want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the the criminal justice equity part of this before we get into the business end mm-hmm. of the business uh, because you know wiping the records of uh, clean of of many people who were low-level marijuana possession offenders, that's a, first off, it's a gargantuan task. Yeah, I don't think people is. realize how many, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, that are, yeah, and it's one affected. of those things, too, when you say, when you start to really dig deep into the numbers and you realize how pervasive it was. So usage rates are the same across demographics, but the over-policing and the, and the um, excessive targeting and fines and fees and arrests and all those things that you get saddled that, that you get saddled with the effects of for the rest of your life happened disproportionately to black and brown communities. That is just a fact. We know that people who were dis when we use that word DIA disproportionately impacted areas or people that that was fifty five percent African American and twenty two percent Latino. So when you think about that, you just think about the sheer numbers of people, and it's generational. So you, it like affected tore up, tore down communities for generations, if you think about how long this has been happening. And to think that um, most governors, when they pardon, they pardon on their way out. Mm -hmm. This governor was brave enough to put his name on it at the end of his very first session. And to stand there, I'll never forget standing there in, or we were sitting in the jury box uh, watching state's attorney Kim Fox read the first hundred names of the first thousand that she was going to give to the chief judge. And I remember sitting there, it's very difficult not to be really emotional about it because drug courts can be cruelly efficient. You can get convictions for people in batches where there's seconds between names. And we gave breath and pause to each name and thought about the fact that this is a result of something that myself and my colleagues worked so incredibly hard on. It was I sat there, I was sitting next to Kelly Cassidy when it happened, I grabbed her hand and we just looked at each other like, look what we, look, look what we did. It's, it is, to think about it now, it still, still moves me like that. And then 
the governor turned turned around and then we eleven thousand eleven thousand in the initial um run for these pardons it was I just think about any person who has been saddled with a record that you have to deal with for the rest of your life. Like you can't can't get a job, you can't get a student loan if you have a felony drug conviction, you can't sign a lease. Um, those pardons are going to mean something not just to the person who was pardoned, but to their parents and their kids and their grandparents and their cousins and their um, Alderman Walter Burnett made that point when he was standing there. He said this affects whole families and everybody you touch. So, yes, this is going to impact hundreds of thousands of people at the end of the day. No matter what the number of records are, this is going to affect hundreds of thousands of people when you really think about how, like, think about how many people just you touch or how many people just I touch or anybody in your family who cares about what happens to you. And that individual's ability to live full, productive lives um, and participate in the economic stream, that's why this was bigger than just whether or not you stood in line to get some gummies. This was bigger than that. And we needed to give the weight and the credence to what this was. I know that there are people out there who don't trust it, don't believe it, or flat out don't want it. But we have to do better than what we've been doing for the last 80 years. The current system we had we had before legalization isn't safe for anybody. Um, how concerned are you that uh, about the way police will be picking their way through this new landscape. Uh, you know, there's still, it's, you're still not supposed to, uh, to uh, use marijuana and drive. Mm-hmm. Still not real tests for it. The rules about where you can and can't uh, consume it uh, are, are still right. being formed. I mean, how do you, Keep yeah, the equilibrium as you go through these new things. Um, <clears throat> I usually start from the standpoint of, again, Illinois is not the first state to legalize. It's the 11th. And so we had the ability, th- those are the areas where we had the ability to study other states and see data and see, you know, how they um, dealt with some of those things in good ways and in bad ways, you know, in negative ways. I'm not naive enough. I'm not naive to think that law enforcement is all of a sudden going to not have the systemic and structural races, races, you know, issues with racism that are embedded in our system. I'm not naive enough to think that's all going to go away because of this one bill. Um, however, we, we worked closely with our friends in law enforcement, the ones who really kind of leaned in even. And, and the cool thing about the stakeholders that got involved in this, even people who we knew would never agree we still wanted to talk to you because they made the bill better. And law enforcement talked about things like, you know, DUI task forces and, and trying to get the public education out to, uh, to have people understand that you really do need to treat this like alcohol. You cannot drive drunk. You cannot go to work drunk. You cannot be, you know, like you can't be in a state of inebriation doing things that, that put, especially if you're in any, any environment with public safety is a concern. It's not different than that. So part of this is, thinking about it differently, watching a generational mind shift happening, and then um, understanding that as we work through these issues, these are issues that are happening across the country. And noting, by the way, that we had a medical program for five solid years, a population of people who have been legally consuming cannabis for five years in this state. I have yet to hear of an increase. There was no increase in traffic incidents with that population. There was no, the sky didn't fall. The sky really didn't fall. So, their, but their I, motive, the, those those patients 
mm-hmm. were seeing themselves as patients. That's that's, that's a why different I say mindset. it is a different mindset. That's why it's different when you go when you talk about this from the medical side as opposed to the adult use side. But I will say they were living their lives. They were going to work. They were driving. They were I mean, they're living their lives and it helped them live their lives. And we did. So the point I'm trying to make is that for five years, we've had a form of legalization in this state that did not cause major headaches for folks. And we need to um, understand that the way we regulate alcohol, the things that we understand about alcohol, one, that it has a fatal dosage point. Alcohol has a fatal dosage point. And we don't think twice about every bar on the on the street. We talk to kids about responsible drinking. There's public health education campaigns about that. You can't get to that place with cannabis until you legalize. You leave it in the shadows, we continue to have what we've been having. So anytime anybody says, are you going to keep this away from kids? I say, yeah, because I'm going to legalize it. Right now, it's all around your kids. You say, keep it away from schools, keep it out of parks. Yeah, we're going to re- we're going to legalize it because right now, it's all in the parks. It's easy. It was easier to come across this than it was to get alcohol or cigarettes. Because the government was in the middle of that and because we talk about it and because we regulate it. You cannot manage or effectively control that which you don't regulate. You can't regulate anything that's not in, in this legal market. So we want to move people to a safe, legal, tested market so that um, we because at the end of the day, this is about public safety. It's, it, it's all of this wrapped up into one thing. You're listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about Illinois' recreational marijuana legalization. And my guest is Toy Hutchinson, uh, Governor J.B. Pritzker's senior advisor for cannabis control. Well, we have to address the anger that uh, some people have feel. Uh, they feel that the bill that's supposed to be a champion of equity uh, is doing it gangbusters on the consumer side. Uh, but on the retail side, the people making money, as you pointed out, uh, in the medical field, no black and brown people running dispensaries, and they're the ones who got the first crack at it. Uh, just to bring our listeners up to date, if you don't remember, there are uh, there were several Chicago aldermen who wanted to delay the sales here until these issues were addressed. Um, you obviously saw things differently from the way they did. Uh, I mean, talk a little bit about where we go from here. Well, that's the exciting part. So one of the things that we um, intentionally did was design a phased roll-in. Um, I didn't mean to make a joke. <laughs> but it was like a roll-in, a roll-out. Um, but it was phased, and it was done intentionally. So one, we have a, we had a population of people who were accustomed already to going into dispensaries. That was, you know, one thing. And we're trying to change the, the public's mindset to that's the way you should be purchasing this. Um, and two, we there um, we had an additional we had an we had a medical program that was existing already. So we needed to turn the industry around, and it takes time and effort to do that. So we designed an application process that would limit the amount of licenses that we would bring online. So we started off with what we already had, which had been in existence for five years. Like we've known that this was a homogenous industry for five years. And then we said, we're going to limit the amount of licenses that come online. One, so that by the time those equity applicants come online, they still have market share to compete in. So let me give you an example. Um, You have states that have, I think California has one dispensary for every 47,000 people. 
Um, but you'll have a state like, I think it's either Oregon or Colorado. I have to check which one. But it's like one for every 9,000 or one for every 6,000. This this rollout is one for every 400 or so thousand people. So we knew that keeping it, starting the program, but keeping it small was a way to protect the the ability for equity applicants to come online and have some market share to compete in. That is very, very different than what any other state did. Every other state said, okay, it's legal. Here's the licenses. And they gave the licenses. The only people who could compete were the ones who were well-resourced, didn't need to use banks because you can't use banks. Knew how, you know, like, I don't, I don't know about you, Craig, but I, I didn't have a, I don't know people that just say, like, you got a million, you got a million, come over here, have me, give me a couple million so we could do yeah, this. Not my circles. That wasn't my circle of friends. <laughs> so we wanted to figure out what is the number one barrier to access to entry into this market and it's access to capital. That's the number one barrier. And because you can't go to a bank and use financial tools, we're like, all right, how do you get the ability for someone to come, to get into this? So we created a revolving loan program. And we seeded the revolving loan program with money from those original operators. So they started, they paid their license fees. That went into a fund that we could target to equity applicants to be able to start get their businesses up and running. And, and I wish we could have doubled, you know, the the um, revolving loan. And we hope that in a mature market, it's going to continue to grow. And then you couple that with reducing fees and creating an application process with a point system that made equity so important you couldn't ignore it but did it in a constitutional way so that it could stand up in court. We we really thought about every program across the country that failed um, when the state didn't add equity provisions into it, and then people tried to backdoor the equity provisions either at the city or the county level. They almost all were struck down by courts. So we wanted to design a program that um, would would stand up to muster knowing, knowing, that we would we would have to be ready for people to challenge it. We knew that. So um, I say all the time when it comes to all the little pieces that we put in in place to try to get those um, the ability for people to compete in ways that they hadn't before, that this is a long game. This is a long game. And that the issue here is not what it looks like on January 1. It's whether what we did worked over the course of this year. And when I saw, we saw 700 individual applications come in, which really is like, you're looking that 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 represented a little over three thousand or so licenses sought. Six hundred of those applications identified as equity. So what we had here in Illinois is the most diverse applicant pool in the country, and that is exciting to see. I can't wait to see how it shakes out. So what I say to people about you know the fact that the industry on January one is all white, we know that. Let's talk about this on January one, twenty twenty one. And then we can talk about whether or not it, it worked. And, I, and I'm also really, really proud of the fact that we built in a slowdown mechanism that we put in the law that says after this first year and we see what this, did, what this was, we do a demand study and we do a disparity study to see if what we did worked. Because if it didn't work, there's not another license that's going out until we can make course corrections. Again, something that no other state did. Once they open the doors wide open and everybody got in, you can't unring that bell. So we're doing this slowly and thoughtfully and deliberately to turn this industry into something that doesn't exist anywhere else. And I'm proud of that work. Do you think there are going to be things that, I know this is probably early in to ask this question, uh, that the legislature might have to 
go back in and, and fix or, or change? I don't look at it as going back in. I look at it as moving forward. I think we're going to be doing weed bills for the rest of our lives. Because you think about it. <laughs> you think about it. When was alcohol legal? Um, we didn't get craft breweries until 2015. This industry is going to emerge and it's going to grow. Um, so the the future things, like there'll be new, there'll, there will always be new fights along the line. I wish there was, I used to, I tell, <laughs> I was talking to my mom and my, and my dad about this. I said, I wish there was one piece of legislation that I could write that would undo all the problems of being black in America for the last 500 years. If I could do that in one bill, I'd do it. I swear I'd write it. But you can't. This is fundamentally about change. And change takes time. And you have to invest in it. This is a long game. So I, I'm anticipating that as new issues develop, as the industry emerges, as it as it shifts and um, bends towards market considerations and people who are absolutely um, able to come in and compete, the one heart, the one thing that gives me hope is that now, now Illinois pulled this off, um, but now you cannot have a conversation about legalization anywhere in this country without talking about equity. We did that. Um, one other, and we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, how concerned are you that because of the taxes making the price of uh, recreational marijuana so high that the black market, some people are predicting that it's going to actually, if anything, get, get even stronger mm-hmm. with people seeking bargains. Right. So we know that, right, there's 11 states now who have legal cannabis, we also know that every single one of those states is surrounded by states who still embrace prohibition. And as long as we're living in this gray area right now, we're not going to be able to get rid of totally the black market, which is not. Because one, Congress needs to act. Um, it's fascinating that Canada is now all legal. Mexico is moving that way. So pretty soon, all of North America, this is not a matter of when. This, it's not a matter of when. I mean, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, really, is what I'm trying to say. It is legalization is coming <laughs> and it's happening a little slower in this country anywhere else, but it's coming. And so the tax, the taxes that people are paying right now, one are based on um, the way we tax alcohol. The, the taxes go up based on the alcohol content. Same thing with cannabis, the higher the strain. So the higher mm-hmm. taxes you pay are people buying really strong stuff. <laughs> um, and then the lower, the lower the THC level amounts, the lower the taxes go. So it's based on that. Most states have had to adjust and tweak how they tax this. But people also need to understand that you're paying for being in a licensed, regulated, tested, packaged, and labeled product, which is very different than continuing to to get um, the product um, from literally on the street, not knowing what you're getting. So that all costs money. We got to invest in this in this system. Um, and I I am. Also very proud of the fact that the sales, the revenue that comes to the state, if we wanted to make as much money as we could, as fast as we could, we wouldn't have done it this way. What we decided to do was not concentrate on the money, but instead concentrate on the people. And that's why 25% of these revenues are going back into the communities that were hit the hardest by drugs. Remember I said earlier, three things. How do you diversify the industry? What do you do with the money? And how do you undo the harms? You can't repair the harms without community investment. And so everything that we t- thought about as it related to this plant, as it related to the sale of this plant, 
um, was thought about in terms of how we could rebuild communities in the face of it. And that's mental health and substance abuse, addiction help, job training and technical assistance for nonprofits who do the work on the ground in these communities that got hit the hardest. So I get that, you know, people, some people had sticker shock. I also get that there were thousands of people who lined up all across the state because they wanted to do this safely and know exactly what they got and be a part of the end of prohibition. That's going to be the final word. That is Toy Hutchinson, Governor J.B. Pritzker's Senior Advisor for Cannabis Control. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you. It's always good to see you, Craig. Always good to see you, too. To our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at WBBMNewsRadio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcasts on Radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.